Welcome back to another episode on macroeconomics. Today we're going to dive into the monetary system. This is Dr. Terry Elin coming to you from home to wherever you are. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the economic ride. So the money system, uh, we're going to clarify a bunch of concepts, a bunch of things that you may have heard uh, that are misinformation or false uh, news or false information that you might find online. So hopefully this chapter clarifies a bunch of different things that um, some people don't really understand too well. So we're going to learn the whole idea behind money, the source, uh, why it came to existence, how the Bank of Canada or other central banks operate, and what are the tools with uh, the, the bank rate that you might see changing from time to time, and what are the impacts down the line into the economy. So we want to understand that whole picture, and we want to understand uh, that this is owned and managed by the government. It's not rich bankers that are taking over the world and uh, just getting rich from all the money that they're creating. So it's something we want to move away from that kind of idea. So before money was introduced, if you think of that $20 bill or anything else that you might have, that form of paper money was introduced. If we think way back when, um, money, when it didn't exist, we were relying on kind of a barter system that you needed to have a double coincidence of wants for a trade or a transaction to occur. There's a really cool video uh, that you should watch on YouTube that is called Money as Debt. And it's a really long video in, in total, like, uh, and the links always seem to change, so I'll, uh, I'll link it up, but uh, if ever it doesn't work, just type in Money as Debt and just watch the first 10 minutes of the video. It kind of goes through the history of money. And what you'll see in that video is like in the and a very long time ago, you need to, to have a situation where if I wanted to get some sheep wool, well, I might have needed to supply a, a knife or something else, like something of value to the other individual to get this trade to happen. So in different villages, you had different people trading different products for other products. It worked out, um, but it was inconvenient over time because sometimes if you needed cheap wool, well, maybe the person who was producing and selling that was not interested in the product that you had. So you had to trade with someone else to then be able to have something that they're interested in. So it just made more sense over time to introduce a form of money. So historically, there was many different forms of money, and it could have been like precious stones, many different things. And in reality, what we really desire from what we consider money or what we consider this this uh, this good that's going to be used is it needs to be a good medium of exchange a good unit of account and a good store of value so let's dive into each of those uh, concepts now medium of exchange well it just needs to be something that buyers and sellers will be willing to give up or get an exchange of goods and services so it's a situation where people are accepting this product there this this uh, this currency and we'll see later on that the currency that we currently use does not really have value on its own the value that we give is based on the reputation it has but a $20 bill is not made of a material that you could melt down and do something with it it's not like a gold coin so 
it has to be accepted, uh, widely accepted. Then it has to be a unit of account in the sense that it's, it's fun when you could easily be looking at a market, looking at different goods that you might be interested in purchasing and that you're able to measure how much of these goods is equal to how much of these goods. So in the past, it might have been really hard to know what's the relative value of wool versus knives versus bacon versus whatever. But these days, it's really easy. You go to the market or you go to the grocery store and you could easily see something's $5, something's $10. Well, whatever that was $5, you could buy two units for the same price, uh, the same exchange, than one unit of the $10 one. So it makes it easy to compare relative values. That's another attribute of money. And then the last thing is you want it to satisfy being a store of value. So if we think of using, let's say, rice or another type of food as money, it's great. You could weigh it. You could kind of find different ways and say, well, to buy this, you need to bring like five pounds of rice or and to buy this 10 pounds of rice. It would work. It would have like that medium of exchange could be widely accepted. It could be a unit of account, but it'd be a poor store of value in the sense that if you wanted to accumulate more and more wealth uh, towards your retirement or whatever, to buy a, a fancier car or something of that nature, well, you would need to have to accumulate a lot. And the problem with this kind of rice as being used as a store of value, well, what would happen if uh, it would get infested or uh, it would it could very rapidly lose, lose all its value. So you want it to be easy to store value. And the only problem with money as we know it these days in terms of store value is inflation. But we'll get back to that later on. But otherwise, in the absence of inflation, or if you can store it in a way that it kind of increases at the rate of inflation, it's, it's easy to set money aside for retirement or for future purchases. So what are the different kinds of money? Well, as I mentioned before, the new kind of money that we have is what we would call fight money, which the actual bill, the actual uh, coin that we're using uh, does not have the value, if we were to melt it, than what we can buy with it in its current form. If we're using gold as money, it would be a different story, because if ever someone didn't want to give you $20 worth of goods for it, you could always kind of melt it and make a jewel out of it and then sell that. So paper on its own is not worth much. You can make a, a small fire, but it's going to last you long for the amount of value that kind of gets in the market. Whereas in the old times, we had what we call commodity money, where that thing used for money actually had some value to it. That's just something to keep in mind uh, going forward, that the money that we have and we use, the reason why it has that value is because everyone accepts it. To have that value as soon as an economy loses thrust and uh, the value of their money well you could have a situation where that um, money loses value really 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 rapidly and those are the situations where we had hyperinflation even though people associated a certain amount of money to buy a certain amount of bread it could be like less than a year later you have to have a thousand times that money to buy the same loaf of bread so it needs a lot of trust into the system. And that's why the central bank has to be credible, has to maintain sh strong policies uh, for that to happen. And that's why sometimes you might travel to certain countries and even though they have their own currency, they might often use US dollars or another currency 
because they see US dollars as being stable. They don't trust their government as much in their financial system. And therefore, they don't want to keep a lot of their assets or savings in their own currency. Then when we, in this class, whenever we'll talk about the quantity of money in circulation or if the government decides to kind of increase the amount of money in circulation, we have to consider a few things. That level of money in circulation is a mixture of um, different things. You could calculate it different ways, and those different ways depends on what you include. So if ever you dive into this deeper, you'll see that there's many different M categories to calculating the money stock. So it starts with kind of like M1, M1+, M2, and so on and so forth. And, and the number and the, the plus just kind of gets added on over and over. In the slides, you'll see like just kind of two examples, but in reality, there's way more than that. And the further you go, like the bigger the number becomes, the more you start including less liquid assets. So liquid assets are things that are very easily converted to a format that you could purchase a good with. So if I think of just cash and a checking account versus having a savings account versus having bonds or stocks, well, they could all be converted to something that you could buy a good with, but buying a good with a bond would be very hard. So money stock in its most basic form only includes currency and checkable deposits. So things you could get money out really rapidly. And the question sometimes arises about credit cards and whether credit cards should be considered the money stock. Well, credit cards in reality are just an easy way to get access to credit. It's not money. It's not something that you own. It's just you quickly have access to getting money, but that you'll owe from someone else. So the amount of money in circulation, if you were, if you currently have one credit card and you decide to have a second one, you can get access to more money and make more purchases, but you don't have more money because that money transaction, uh, it, it just allows you to get access to more money, but it doesn't change anything in terms of the amount of money in circulation. Because the bank issuing the credit card pays the bill and then you repay the bank at a later date. But there's just kind of one transaction that happens. If you were to count both steps, you would be double counting and you would increase the money stock when it shouldn't be increased. So currency and checkable deposits are the, the main kind of ones. But then you could add, add less liquid formats of uh, uh, money in, in the calculation. So moving on to central banks and how everything kind of came to be. So most large economies currently have a central bank. So we have the Bank of Canada. In the States, we have the Federal Reserve. And in Europe, not for all of Europe, but for the Eurozone, you have the European Central Bank. And later on, we'll see why initially, when the Euro was created, the Bank of England decided not to join the Euro zone to keep its own currency it's going to have a link to having absolute control over its currency and monetary policy which we'll get to know later on but overall uh, we have a situation that um, we have these central banks for all of these countries and the central bank uh, kind of jumping forward in a certain way 
is a bank for the commercial banks and for the federal government. It's not a bank where uh, an individual like yourself or my can uh, open up a bank account. You can't just say, oh, who, which bank are you with? Are you with Desjardins? Are you with CIBC? No, I'm with the Bank of Canada. You might be with uh, the CIBC or TD Bank or Bank of Montreal, but Bank of Canada is not a commercial bank where we have access to. So this Bank of Canada was created to kind of protect the banking system and it was created and nationalized pretty much at the same time in the same kind of years. So if ever you hear of the Bank of Canada making profits, well, all those profits accruing from operations are remitted back to the government of Canada because it is owned by the government of Canada. And the thing that's interesting to note about the Bank of Canada is that we'll see later on, based on what they actually do, that they want to be as free and independent as possible from day-to-day -day political influence which means that the governor, who is the main person in charge of the Bank of Canada, and there's like hundreds and hundreds of employees, well, that governor is appointed by the board of directors, and it typically sits on a seven-year term. So if you think about seven years versus common elections at the federal level as every four years, they're trying to do it in a way that there's kind of overlap between the governments and that it's not necessarily, oh, the liberals are in power, therefore there's going to be a liberal governor. Oh, the conservatives are in power, therefore they will change the conservative governor. They try to kind of free themselves from political influence. And along those lines, uh, they want to be as independent as possible, and we'll see why in the future. And a hint on that reason why is just so that we can keep inflation levels low and stable. And to note that when there's going to be that trade-off between inflation and employment and uh, an election year coming up, that we could feel that the Bank of Canada will still take inflation seriously. They won't just stimulate the com country a lot and create a lot of inflation just to increase the employment levels. So they want to be as independent as possible. But the Minister of Finance can always issue an explicit directive to the governor. But as far as I know, this has never happened in the past in Canada. So let's see uh, what are the different purposes of the Bank of Canada or, or the other central banks. So what are those purposes for the Bank of Canada? Well, there's a series of them, but if you were to condense them all, you would see that the main purpose is inflation targeting. So the Bank of Canada wants to create stability in the financial markets, and it does so by targeting inflation at this one to three percent rate with a target of two percent since 1991 they could always revise this target they revise it pretty much every five years so you might hear on the news from time to time that they decided to maintain their target of two percent inflation um, but who knows in the future they could always reduce that target to one percent but for the time being i could clearly say that it would stay two uh, percent for a while and then based on that target as set every five years, well, they're trying to maintain that target. So if you're a business and you know that the central bank aims a target of 2% for the next five years and you have negotiations going on with your employees and uh, you're talking about salary increases based on inflation, well, it's pretty easy to factor that in because they've done a good job so far at maintaining inflation around that level. You'll see different charts that kind of confirm this. 
and it kind of states that this is their goal going into the future. So if ever you hear about high interest rates in the past and the years that your parents may have gotten the mortgage, well, all of those were prior to 1991. Like there was periods where we had like double digits inflation levels and that's no longer the case. The big thing that you have to watch out for in this class is even though they're both percentages, you have to make a big distinguishing between inflation rate targets and interest rate targets when we're going to be talking about the overnight interest rate. So one's an interest, one's inflation. That's two different subjects entirely. Like they might both be targets, they might both be in percentage terms, but we're not talking about the same thing at all. Uh, so just keep that in mind uh, that they're not the same. So how do they keep inflation at a certain level? Well, it's we're going to see by have an impact on currency, have an impact on the money supply, the amount of money in circulation. And then otherwise, they act as a banker to other commercial banks, and we'll see how that works pretty quickly. And then they're also a banker to the federal government. So the federal government is the only government, uh, the only people that could have access to a bank account at the Bank of Canada. And here we're talking about the different institutions, not individuals at that bank. Uh, no, no private accounts, those are commercial banks, but uh, the government accounts could be at the Bank of Canada. Um, so let's understand first the impact that commercial banks have on the money supply. And then knowing this, how can the central bank also have an impact on the money supply? So we have to understand the concept of money creation. And to understand this concept, we have to keep in mind that commercial banks have a lot of impact on the amount of money in circulation. Before commercial banks existed, and you should have seen this in the Money as Debt video, you had to have a certain amount of income uh, to be able to purchase certain goods. And if you couldn't purchase it, you could ask friends or family to loan you a bit of money to make a purchase. But otherwise, if you think of the absence of a bank, you don't have a loan system and so on in place, a financial market in place, It'd be really hard to make big purchases. Well, since that banking system exists, they operate in two kind of forms. One, you shelter your money, you, you have your money in a safe location by depositing your money in the bank. That way, uh, if your house gets robbed, you don't have all of your assets and all of your wealth inside your home. And what they'll do with that money is they'll actually make money with that money. And how does this work? So. If you were to deposit $100 at the bank, they could potentially put all of that money into their vaults and it's done with and so be it. But in that situation there, you would be depositing money in the bank and they'd be charging you to offer the service of sheltering your money. But how banking systems work now, well, when you deposit money at the bank, you don't really pay a fee for this kind of service. So the, the fee payment is more because they actually make money off of your money. So this works by you depositing $100 at the bank. They'll only keep a small portion of that money as reserves in, in their vaults, and then they'll loan out the rest. Well, how could this be possible? Well, if you were the only consumer at the bank and you were to deposit money and then the next week take the money out to make a purchase, they wouldn't be able to do this. But if we think that we're like thousands and thousands and thousands of consumers at a single bank, 
Well, the likelihood that we all deposit and take our money out at the same time is very low. Therefore, they do not need to keep reserves for the total amount of money deposited because they know that even though some of us will take our, some of our money out or all of our money out, if they only keep a fraction of the total amount of money deposited, they should be fine. And we'll see what happens if they, they, they run out of money uh, through uh, borrowing in the overnight market. And we'll get, that, get to that in a second. So in the, in, the, in the situation where out of $100, they only keep $10 as reserves, well, the other $90 becomes a, a loan. And normally when you take out a loan, it's to make a purchase. So you don't just take money out and then keep that money in your pockets. You take money out to make a purchase. So as soon as the bank loans you $90, well, that money is going to go to somewhere else, being spent somewhere else really rapidly. And that $90 will ultimately potentially be completely reinvested in the bank and here not invested, but like deposited in bank by the other individual. So let's say it's the same bank. So we have TD makes a loan of $90 from their first $100 of deposit. Another member borrows that money, makes a purchase, and this other person receiving the money deposits that money back into the bank account. Well, that process kind of repeats itself. The bank now receives a new deposit of $90 they decide, well, we don't need to keep this whole $90. He's not going to come out and take the money out completely. There's a lot of other individuals. So we're only going to keep 10% of it, $9, and we'll loan out the rest. So someone else takes out a loan for $81 and then makes a purchase. That person who receives that money deposits the money. And this kind of uh, circle repeats itself time after time after time. And that total amount of money that's being created or available through this initial deposit is what we call the money creation and in all of this money creation process you don't really have to know all the t accounts and so on but you have to know how to calculate this money multiplier because it might be asked so the money multiplier is always going to be one over the preserve ratio it's going to give you the multiplicative factor that you have to put to the initial deposit so if you have 10 percent well one over 0.1 is 10 and 10 times 100, well, you have $1,000 that is available through this $100 of initial deposits. So it tells us how much the actual commercial banks can have an influence on the amount of money in circulation. Because if they were to increase that money multiplier to 20%, uh, all of a sudden, that money multiplicative factor would only be 5. And if they were to drop it to 1%, well, it would be 100. So you could think, well, the amount of money in circulation could vary drastically just by commercial banks decided that keeping more or less money as reserves so here the money the central bank has done nothing people like you and me haven't done anything but for some reason there's more credit available or less credit available so there's something going on there that we have to be aware of there's also the idea that some of that money may be kept so maybe you receive $90 but you only deposit $80 in the bank and you keep $10 in your pockets this is less and less likely these days we keep less and less cash especially in pandemic times where most institutions don't accept cash but even in that pre-pandemic or post-pandemic where you have a certain level of cash um, most people don't anymore so the cash drain ratio or the currency deposit ratio is not relevant as much anymore but if you were to include it let's say it's another 10 percent well you would have to add those two at the denominator and the money multiplier calculation because in reality if only 80 dollars or the 90 dollars gets deposited 
it means that this multi multiplicative factor and how it gets uh, increases over time is going to be less because less money is redeposited. So if, if some of you are looking at this and thinking, well, this is terrible that the banks are allowed to only keep a small number of their deposits as reserves and they loan out the rest, what happens if the bank fails? Will I lose all my money? Should I take it all out? Well, the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation pretty much protects your money uh, up to a certain level. So uh, this can vary over time, but typically it's been around $100,000 of your deposits is protected by the, the bank, this kind of insurance corporation. So these banks have to pay for the service in a certain way, the, uh, but you don't have to worry about that. If ever they fail, if ever they go bankrupt, your deposits are insured up to $100,000. And for the people with the case Popular Desjardins, I'm pretty sure that insurance goes through l'autorité des marchés financiers, but it's the same kind of idea, about $100,000 uh, that is protected from bank failure. And typically speaking, I don't think I'll ever meet anyone who has more than $100,000 in their checking account. Normally, if you have a, that kind of money, you're, you're doing something productive with it. You're saving it in something that bears more interest than just a simple uh, deposit or checking account. So there's a big difference between this kind of concept of creating money versus creating wealth. So this whole money multiplying process creates more and more credit available, but it doesn't really create more and more products being produced. So <clears throat> we have to keep that in mind that it's uh, just how much credit is actually available is a big uh, discussion here. So when it comes to monetary control, the central bank has a few tools up its sleeve. Uh, some of these tools they don't really use, and some of them actually happen more as a byproduct of the other tools. Uh, so the ones I'm going to focus on is changes in the overnight rate. Changes in reserve requirements uh, hasn't really happened since the mid-90s, and uh, the other ones kind of happen as a, an impact following change in interest rates. So how, do, how does this overnight market work? Um, so first off, I'm just going to describe the overnight market and then discuss the whole idea of how it works using a different good. And hopefully that's going to translate back to this concept that some people might struggle with at first and um, see how that works. So the overnight market is a market that exists so that commercial banks can interact with one another at the end of the day to balance their books and if ever there's running out of money, well, they'll have to borrow on a very short-term basis and overnight until they could uh, pay back the next day, hopefully. So you have this situation where, let's say you were to buy a house and your bank, your loan is with TD and the person you're buying the house from is with CIBC. Well, this whole amount of money that TD is essentially lending you while well, they have to transfer that money to CIPC once the sale happens because this other owner needs to be able to cash in and have that money. So there needs to be a transfer that happens. Same thing goes as if you go in an ATM from another bank than your own, well, there has to be some way where one could repay the other. If everyone, if all of these banks have enough reserves, have enough money left uh, in terms of easily accessible money, they could easily pay off the other bank at the end of the day. 
But sometimes it happens that uh, there's just too much money flowing out in a given day that they're going to have to borrow. And this is where this kind of overnight interest rate uh, fits in and how the Bank of Canada fits in. So the Bank of Canada wants this rate to be at a certain level, a certain range. And how could they make this happening? Because at the same time, they don't want commercial banks to all borrow from them. They want to be kind of like out of the picture, but they want to make sure that it is at a certain rate. And we'll see why they're, they're aiming for a specific kind of range to a rate, which could vary over time if we're doing uh, if we're in a recession or if we're in a booming economy. So think about any good out there uh, that uh, you might be interested. So let's say it's a car or whatever else. And the government decides, well, we don't like that this product is selling for 20000 Well, We want this product to sell for 30000 So how could they do so? Well, there's a lot of mechanisms when it comes to goods. But one of those mechanisms, if we think of an extrapolation of this overnight interest rate, it would be to say, well, we can buy or sell this car for you and... Um, well, uh, we want we want the price to be about thirty thousand. So, if ever you want to sell me this car, I'll give you twenty eight thousand. And if ever you want to borrow buy this car from me, you're gonna have to pay thirty two thousand. So this is the Bank of Canada kind of intervening. So then at that point, there is no reason if you are a seller to sell the car for less than twenty eight thousand to anyone else because you know you could always your your last kind of option that works every time is to sell it to the Bank of Canada. So I could sell it for 28000 And if you're a buyer, you could think, well, I'm never going to pay more than 32000 for this good because I know I could buy it from the Bank of Canada, 32000 So it kind of sets a limit. Price can't be above 32000 can't be below 28000 So how do we make sure that the Bank of Canada does not have too much of uh, a play in here that they're not acting as a bank because that's not their goal well if you think about it you have a bunch of buyers that are willing to buy at a certain price and their max is 32 because the that's the bank of canada's price and there's a bunch of sellers that are willing to sell and at the lowest price they'll, they'll go is twenty eight thousand because they can they know they could sell it to the bank of canada twenty eight thousand. so you have a buyer at 32 and a seller at 28 well, it doesn't make any sense for the seller to sell it at 28 to the Bank of Canada and then the buyer buy it from the Bank of Canada at 32, where they could both meet in the middle and both be happier. If they could both trade to one another at 30,000, they'll be in a situation where that seller will get 30,000, which is 2,000 more than 28,000, and the buyer will pay 30,000, which is 2,000 less than 32,000. So they're both gaining by meeting in the middle and trading with one another. And this is how the overnight interest rate market works with the intervention of the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada is gonna set an upper pr price on borrowing money, a lower price on if you were to deposit money at the Bank of Canada, and then that range will be typically a 0.5% range. The only times it's less than 0.5% is if the interest rate gets really close to zero, sometimes it could be more narrow, but typically it's 0.5%. So if the Bank of Canada, if you could borrow from the Bank of Canada at 1.5, that means that you could lend to the Bank of Canada at 1%.
And naturally, like in the example that I just gave with the car, well, the actual interest rate that we will typically observe in the overnight market will be somewhere in between the two because the different um, actors, in this case, the banks, rather meet with each other and charge a exchange, uh, uh, an interest rate that is beneficial to both, which will be somewhere in the middle. So if that range is 1.5, 1 to 1.5, well, probably the target, well, not probably, the target will be the midpoint, 1.25, and probably in the overnight market, the actual exchange interest rate that we will see will be 1.25% as well. So it's just kind of like making sure that we say, stay within this kind of range that the bank is there for. At the end of the day, most commercial banks just deal with each other. And it'd be the same thing with goods. Let's say we could think about textbooks on campus. Well, if there's someone who kind of offers to buy and sell, like let's say uh, the textbook that you're using in this class, I offer to buy the textbook from you at $50 and I offer to sell it at 100 well, you much rather meet up with someone else who's interested in buying and you're interested in selling and meet up at 75 than to deal with me. So I'm there, I'm kind of set a range that is acceptable and then you guys can negotiate in the middle. And if I wasn't there, well, maybe if the book is really rare and people want to get access to it, you, you could sell it for two, three hundred dollars. Or if there's just a lot of books available, you're stuck selling it for ten dollars. But by having this person that's in there, making sure that it's within the range, you're adding a little stability. And if you know that this kind of target is going to maintain for a little while, you could know how to make decisions. You, you could say, well, I'll buy the book now because I know that there'll be a certain security, a certain price I'll be able to obtain when I sell it. I won't get screwed over. So it's the same kind of idea here that applies with interest rates. So typically that overnight interest rate can fluctuate eight times per year. The bank rate can fluctuate eight times per year. But often you'll hear in the news that they've kept the, the previous rate stable. So you'll hear this every month and a half. You'll hear an announcement that says they either kept the, the federal rate or the Bank of Canada rate, the target rate stable. And if you look online and you just tap in uh, target interest rate, overnight interest rate, uh, bank rate on Google, you'll be able to see kind of like on the back of Canada websites, the different interest rates that have happened uh, over the last period. So that's the kind of the mechanism that happened. And if you think of that one to 1.5% range, well, if the economy is doing well, what we want to do is we want to make it more costly to borrow to kind of slow down the economy. Well, this rate at which commercial banks can borrow from one another in the overnight market trickles down to the other rates. Like they won't pay 1% interest in the overnight market and then charge you 0% on a mortgage. Like they'll both be in line and typically they'll always charge you more than what they can pay. So if at 1% they're charging you 2%, well, if ever the Bank of Canada rate or the overnight rate goes up to 3%, well, you could expect your mortgages to follow as well. So if the government wanted to have people borrow less by increasing interest rates, it can't say to the banks, you're going to have to charge this on a line of credit, this amount on a mortgage and so on. They're all kind of like independent actors. They have flexibility on how much they want to charge. But if they're charged more to borrow, well, naturally, they'll charge consumers more to borrow as well. So by increasing the overnight rate, 
which is something you'd expect to see as we're nearing the end of a recession, you should expect all variable rates of interest, all rates of interest that can fluctuate to move up as well. So in times of recessions where the interest rates are really low, you get a loan for a mortgage, it's going to be very low. Uh, you get a line of credit, it's going to be low. But if you're kind of on a variable rate, expect it to go up as the economy recovers and the bank rate goes up. So that's how it influences it. And naturally, if there's big changes that happen, uh, they might rely a little bit more on the Bank of Canada or a little less. But overall, commercial banks like to deal with one another because it's just more valuable for them to do so. So that's the general idea. If you look at the slides, you'll be able to kind of see how it happens more in the videos. It kind of goes a little bit more in depth, but it's just this idea of creating this band that limits all the other options above and below this interest rate range would be unacceptable to accept. And then after you've established that, then you're kind of creating a certain level of stability. If you're a commercial bank who may run out of money, you know that in the overnight market, you're not going to be charged 20%. And if you decide to accumulate a bit more reserves, you know that you're not going to loan out at 0.001%. You're going to have a certain rate that you're going to get in the overnight market. So it gives you a bit of an idea, tells you how to manage your money as a banker in a commercial bank. So that's the whole kind of idea that uh, typically that overnight rate is what's going to have an impact on other interest rate, which is going to have an impact on how much money banks keep as reserves. If that interest rate's really high, they'll keep less. If they keep less, uh, I mean, if the interest rate is high, they'll keep more reserves. If they keep more reserves, they have a smaller reserve, uh, a higher reserve ratio, which means that they'll have a smaller money multiplier, which means that there's less credit available in the economy. So all of those things tie in to one another. And uh, the whole idea there is to have an influence on the markets, because even though the Bank of Canada can't control how many loans commercial banks do and at what rate, they can have a lot of influence over it all. And that has a lot of influence on investment and consumption. So that's the big kind of picture there. If ever there's a fear in the financial markets, such as around 2008, the banks, the Bank of Canada could also issue some loans and use some form of quantitative easing, which is something we don't get into too much in this class, but there's other mechanisms that could be used. But mainly the main tool that the Bank of Canada uses to create some inflation stability, at the end of the day, that's always been their goal, is overnight interest rate targeting. So hopefully you found this slightly longer audio lecture uh, interesting. If you have any questions, let me know and I'll talk to you soon.